You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. So today uh, is the last message that I'll be doing on the Gospel of Luke series I've been doing. And uh, last Sunday being Easter, we emphasized the uh, resurrection of Christ, the perspective that Luke brought. But also in chapter 24 are a couple other stories that follow the resurrection. And we're going to look at that. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand for the reading of the word. And we're going to read two segments of uh, those passages. The first one comes from chapter 24, verses 13 through 16. Let's read this together. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now we're going to skip on down to another passage in chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. Is it is not myself? Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. The Holy Spirit, I pray, as the word is taught today, that it helps us to continue our journey in life as we serve, we worship you, and God, as we Uh, live a life that's a witness. I pray that our minds are touched. I pray that our hearts are motivated. And God, that our expressions reflect you in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So while I'm wrapping up this series on the Gospel of Luke, today's message, I could actually give it a subtitle, is this. So Jesus rose from the dead. Now what? I mean, usually, hey, I, I'm guilty of this. We often preach the resurrection on Sunday, you know, and then the next Sunday we just kind of like move on to some other topic. And today I, I would say this. This is actually an extension of that topic because we have some other stories that follow the resurrection of Christ. Every writer in the gospel, all four gospels, they all tell subsequent stories about Jesus after he rose from the dead. So many times we'll reference those stories briefly, maybe when we're preaching on something else. But a lot of times we don't delve into just exactly those stories. And being the fact that we just preached about the resurrection last Sunday, I thought this was a good day to preach about. So what? All right, so Jesus rose from the dead. What did that mean to the folks of of Jesus' particular day? And so what's interesting is we learn from some other scriptures a little broader picture about Jesus' life and ministry after he rose from the dead. When you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, 
Luke writes this, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. They still could not believe that this had happened. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, some of you that, uh, who may not be real familiar with Christianity may be a little unaware of that, that it was actually 40 days that Jesus was, was appearing and teaching, um, eating with them, and just because the, the, the important thing to recognize in the story is this. They knew that ghosts didn't eat, so the fact that Jesus was eating says that he was literally physically there. And so he was, he was offsetting that challenge that somehow he was just a ghost. You go on into uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the Apostle Paul gives us a little more insight about the ministry of Jesus after he rose from the dead. So I'm picking the story up midstream here, and he says, And that he appeared to Cephas, that would have been Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. How would it have loved to have been in that church service? You know, Jesus walking into the room, there's 500 people. That's a service you'll never forget, right? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So this is interesting. Like I said, there's a, there's a pretty substantial amount of activity in, uh, of Jesus' life that occurs after he rose from the dead. But what's, what's interesting is this. We hardly have any information about what happened. Now, you and I, you know, we're sitting here today saying, how in the world could they have not recorded what happened? How many know that would have been a whole other book? So you're kind of like, why, why did they abbreviate what happened in those 40 days? What was, the, what was the point of doing that? And so after telling the story of Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, and I preached that last week, Luke just tells three more stories. And I'm like, you, yeah, I'm like, really? 40 days, and the best you got is three stories. And they're really, you, you look at them and you're just kind of like, I'm really not, I'm not saying they aren't important, but I, you know, you're just kind of like, there just had to be some other stuff that was really wow. Why didn't you record it? He talks about Jesus appearing on the road to Emmaus. That is a big deal, okay? Then it says he appeared to the disciples as they were in a closed room. The doors were locked and the windows were shut. He shows up there. I'm not saying that's a big deal. And then he just goes to, and Jesus ascends to heaven. Now, I'm like you. I'm kind of like, man, you skipped a lot. I've got questions. Okay, if I would have been in Luke's present, I would have been, my hand would have been up. I got questions like, how can you go from those two stories to the ascension of Christ? Like, what happened? Okay, those stories took one day. What happened on the other 39? Talk to me. And, it, and what's interesting is, the other writers of the Gospels have a little bit, but they really don't fill in a bunch. And so the key is this, what this tells us is this. Because of our mindset as Westerners, we often have an education that prepar prepares us to know how to ask certain questions. Now, you can say, oh, no, no, yeah, you do. You were taught how to investigate writings and questions and come up. And the problem is, this was not written in the Western world, written in the Eastern world. And so, they, so what we have to do is this. What was the point about 40 days of activity? And why did Luke choose these three? And here's the thing, he obviously thought they were super important. In other words, of all that he could have wrote, 
he said these were the three biggest stories that needed to be told. Because of time and distance and culture, I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but I look at it and go, well, I just wish you'd have wrote more. I wish you would have told. I'm not saying these aren't big stories, but, you know, there's got to be some more wow in there. Am I the only one who thinks that way? And, and I did not say it wasn't God's word, and I didn't say it wasn't inspired. I just, you know, I just like, man, it just seems like there's a lot missing. So why would Luke say, but these are the most important stories? So we're going to look at this because the key is this. We, he's trying to communicate something, and sometimes we're not asking the right question. The key is to ask the right question. What, because what he does is this, he wraps up his book talking about seeking the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to get to that in a minute. In this book, he wraps it up about receiving the Holy Spirit. It says, don't go out until you've, been received, you've received the power. And you're kind of, okay, so he's trying to prove why this is important. So these are the stories. So number one, read the number one with me. Luke demonstrates the power, the power of spiritual blindness. In both stories, you may have picked this up, but sometimes a familiarity of a story prevents us from seeing what's actually there. He says this, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So the conversation is Jesus. Everybody with me? They're talking about Jesus and everything that has happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. How many know that would have been probably, whoa! But look at the next. But they were kept from recognizing it. The topic is Jesus, and Jesus shows up, and they don't know that the topic of the conversation has just shown up. Now some people, see this is where presumption gets us in trouble. The presumption is this, that God somehow, or Jesus somehow, was preventing them from seeing who he was. The scripture doesn't say it was Jesus or God causing this. It just says they didn't recognize them. They were kept. Why? Because they had spiritual blindness. And I'm going to unpack this a little further. And I, the reason this is critical today is this. Not that most churches across the nation, even around the world, experienced record attendance at Easter. Okay? But some of those folks, they'll say that they believe they believe in the resurrection. That's why they went to service. That's why they go. That's all. But yet... They still don't understand the person of Jesus. He's a historical figure, but they don't understand. Like when we say the phrase, he's in the room, he's here now. They're like, mm, okay, yeah, we acknowledge him. I say, no, you don't understand, he's here. Spiritual blindness prevents them from seeing that. They don't comprehend. But you say, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Absolutely. But what they can't do is understand the reality of his presence in their life. That's blindness. He goes on and, and, and shows another dimension. Read number two with me. Luke demonstrates the power of false expectation. So when we have spiritual blindness, we're always going to it's going to lead us to false expectations. It says in verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas, and by the way, historians actually believe Luke 
got the story from Cleopas, that's the reason he mentions his name. He's giving credit as to who his source is. So we actually believe that Luke interviewed Cleopas. He goes, like, this is a real awkward moment. We're talking about Jesus, and we don't even know it's Jesus. How bad is that, Luke? Luke goes, yeah, man, I'd hate to have been there on that one. <laughs> Asked him, are you, the holy, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Let's pause. Does everybody pick up what the problem is already? He's died and rose again, and they still have him sandwiched in the box of being a prophet. They have yet to buy in he's the Messiah. Even with everything that they're hearing, he's still a prophet to them. So false expectations is now leading to spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is causing false expectation. So we'll continue the story. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Look at this. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, finally the Romans will get what's coming to them. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. False expectations. So the reason Luke brings this up is because he's beginning to show us this is going to be the pattern of the future. Spiritual blindness, false expectation. False expectations produce spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness produces false expectations. And it's just a reciprocal thing. Believe it or not, the majority of Americans still believe in Jesus as a real human being, as a real person who lived. The majority of Americans still believe that he died and rose again. But you kind of got to look at the culture and say, well, while they may believe it, I don't think they've absorbed it. I don't think anybody could make the case that somehow just believing that Jesus died and rose again has... Right now, our culture seems to be sliding very quickly towards one direction. So you're like, how can people be believing that and the culture is going a completely different direction? Because they had false expectations. Because here's what you, if you, sometimes when you engage people in conversation, you hear those false expectations. If there's a God who heals, then why did he let my mother die? Why did he let my father die? Why did God let my son die? Why, didn't, why did God let my, my, my daughter die? Why did God let my friend, if God's the healer, if he's real, and why didn't he step in and do something? False expectations. Yeah, we believe that God heals. Absolutely. But the other side of this is this. Let's be careful that we don't say that, this, that we're in heaven. We're not in heaven. We're on earth. And Matthew tells us it rains on the just and the unjust. Amen? People say, well, I don't understand. If there's a God, how can he let people starve around the world? See, false expectations. That somehow world hunger is God's fault. And you go, well, wait a minute. There's plenty of food on earth to take care of everybody so that nobody's hungry. What you have there is a breakdown in the systems of man to prevent the food from getting to everybody as it's, as it's fit. The problem is that God didn't put enough food on earth. He did. 
Man is the cause of the hunger for a variety of reasons, whether it be war, whether it be politics, or whatever, you, or, or just not systems enough to be able to get. But God did provide enough food. World hunger is not God's fault. That's man's fault. But see false expectations. Well, then he should do something. He did. He sent Jesus. See, false expectations about what God should do, what God should not do, all these things. And then it leads to blindness. So then we start projecting. See, we project promises onto God. Listen, we project promises onto God he never made. And then people get mad and angry. Why? Just like these folks did. He didn't depose the Romans. He didn't get rid of them. He didn't set it up. See, they had already decided this is what the Messiah does. They never thought that they had a wrong expectation of what the Messiah was about. So what happens is this. Our blindness contributes to false expectations, which feeds more blindness, which feeds more false expectations. And then somebody, people at some point go, I want nothing to do with this. And you're like, wait a minute, you didn't say he didn't rise from the dead. You're just saying you're dismissing him as your authority now. You didn't disprove that he didn't rise from it. So how do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, number three, read it out loud. Luke demonstrated the value. See, this is where the word comes in. So Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. Okay, now, I'm going to tell you something. The word foolish, if you go in the Greek, do you know what the literal translation is? Stupid. And I know some parents just freaked out. Oh, my gosh, I tell my kids not to use that word, and there you are standing up there. And it's like, well, I didn't say it. Jesus did. <laughs> but the translators, being sensitive to the political climate, seriously, have translated it foolish, more palatable. But you're more welcome to go do the research on the word. It actually means stupid. And then he says, and how slow to believe. He calls them slow. Boy, Jesus would, can you imagine having him as your pastor? <laughs> calling people stupid, calling them slow. People would be, well, you can't do that. I'm, you, that. That's insensitive. Jesus, you need to clean it up. You can't say those things today. You're, it's offensive. I don't want my children hearing that. Oh, come on, you know that's what would be happening. Meanwhile, the message that Jesus is saying is not even being listened to. I don't like his words. Totally missing the message. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Look what Jesus did. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? First thing he does is make sure that he gets himself out of the category of prophet and he goes back to using the word Messiah. See that? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. So this had to be a long conversation because Jesus starts in Exodus and works his way forward. It takes some time to get through the Old Testament. And again, it shows us the full authority of the scriptures. Some people have a tendency, there's some who are propagating today, don't worry about the old, it's over, it's done, it's closed, we're in the new. And I'm going, well, that's funny. Jesus used it as an authority. I'm not going to say it doesn't require some effort and work on our part, but just because it requires more effort and more work on my part doesn't mean I get to dismiss it. 
Well, that, that's too hard. Try that in school. Here's a test. I don't take tests. They're too hard. Just pass me. That's not, that's not how it works. Just because it's harder for you than others, you don't get a pass. So you have to put a little more effort into it. He goes on then to say this. Okay, I'm sorry. I wanted to say more, but time is, I'm going to have to hurry up. Here we go. Number th four, say it out loud. Luke illustrates that Jesus changes what we see, feel, and understand. So he's shown these obstacles. He's showing the word, how it brings correction and what it's useful for to address false expectations. Then he in verse 30, when he was at the table, so they invited Jesus to come to their house. Jesus said, I need to go. They said, no, no, no. We want you to hang around. We want to keep talking with you. We're learning something. So Jesus goes to the house. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. What a bummer. Jesus! Boom, he's gone. <laughs> Didn't even get a chance to go beyond just recognizing who he was. But notice this. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Notice the tool that they referenced that Jesus used, the scriptures. And what you see here is three things. Jesus changed what they saw. Jesus changed what they felt. They said, our hearts were burning. We, we sensed something. And he changed our understanding. Because now we understand the scriptures better. And I can just tell you that categorically today. Jesus wants to change what you see. He wants to change how you feel. And he wants to change what you understand. That's transform. Listen, that is, a, that is such a powerful... A definition of transformation right there and so he's showing us how Jesus addressed that blindness and how he addressed uh, that misunderstanding that lack of knowledge and he's showing us how Je Luke is showing us how Jesus did it now here's the thing it goes on to another story and what he's doing is this read this out loud Luke illustrates the ongoing spiritual battle for people to believe. So what Luke is doing is this. While he gives us two different stories, he's showing us a pattern that is consistent in both. So now that he's finished this story with the two who are on the road to Emmaus, they go to the house to tell the disciples what they've experienced. And while they're telling the story, Jesus shows up in a house where the windows are closed and the doors are locked and they're inside and Jesus just walks in. And it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. You have to do that when you've walked through the wall. <laughs> Walking through walls messes up the dynamics of the room. So the first thing Jesus does is he says, peace be with you. That's when everybody goes, okay, this sounds like it's going to go positive. Because, you know, something walks through the wall, you're like, this could go bad. <laughs> they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see, 
A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. I'm stopping right there because this is where familiarity with a story that comes from other sources takes us somewhere and we miss what's being said. We now, most people will say, and this is when they started to believe. No, it isn't. And while they still did not believe it. You see that? He's standing there, here's my hands, here's my feet, here's... Now, Thomas, that worked. But initially, with the disciples, it did not work. But it does say they did have joy and amazement. Now, isn't that interesting? The human being has the ability to be amazed and joyful and not believe. In other words... All right, I'm feeling good about it. Can't say that I'm all in, but I'm feeling good about the momentum that's in the room right now. But I can't say that I'm like totally buying everything that's happening in the room. But I'm good with the flow. That's what's happening here. They have not. Jesus is standing there having a conversation and they still haven't bought into it. Why? Because you have the same thing that you did before. Spiritual blindness. That's being fed by false expectations. Okay? And then as you go on down, he says, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. How many know we've heard this statement similar just earlier? Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Notice that? The spiritual blindness. Until the scriptures say, here's where you're off. Understand the scriptures. It'll change your false expectations. It will address your spiritual blindness. He's told them, this is what is written. The Messiah. Oh, notice again, he's making sure. That he knows they think he's a prophet. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all generations beginning at Jerusalem. Notice he's the one who peels the scripture to, to solve and bring a cure to what the problem is in their spirituality. And another correction, he again says, I am the Messiah. I am not just a great prophet. That's your problem. You have me in the wrong box. I'm the real deal. See, what's amazing is, is we sometimes think the resurrection solved everything. The resurrection solved some things, but it positioned the kingdom of God to begin to address the bigger perspective. It's this, the, the enemy uses spiritual blindness and false expectations to keep the resurrection marginalized. Yeah, I acknowledge that it's there, but has it changed your life? Well, you know, there's a lot of things about that Christianity, I'm not quite sure. Let me get this. He rose from the dead, and you're not quite sure you want to buy in yet. Wow. Okay. What else does he need to do? See, that's the problem. This blindness. This misunderstanding. 
Number six, read this. Luke illustrates the need for the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christ's followers. So after he does the road to Emmaus, he now addresses the disciples that are in the room, okay? And then his last segment of that story with the disciples in the room is this. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with what? Power from what? Interesting. From power from on high. So as he has addressed the spiritual blindness and false expectations, he says this. The reason I've been effective with you is because of the power of the Holy Spirit, and you need the same thing. See, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has referenced the Holy Spirit 17 times. But in the, in the book of Acts, which comes right after this, he references it 50 times. Why? Because in order to be effective in dealing with people's spiritual blindness and false expectation, that is a spiritual warfare issue. I didn't say it was salvation. They, they're saved, okay? But he's saying in, there's a warfare out there that if you want to engage in the warfare, there is another work that can happen in your life It's related to the Holy Spirit. You're saved. So here's a great illustration that I can give you uh, that relates to that. Let's say that there's a, 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 a child whose parents, one of their parents, either their mom or dad is a professional athlete. And as the child grows, here's the thing, that child is always known as the son or daughter, right? In spite of mom or dad being a professional athlete, they are the son. Whether they even go into sports themselves, that's still my mom and dad, right? But let's say one day that child says, man, I want to become a professional athlete like my mom or my dad. I want to do what they're doing. Well, how many know that's going to require more than having a mom or having them as a mom or dad? You're now going to have to go to the gym. Okay, that's a subsequent work to being the son or a daughter of an athlete. You have relationship, but if you want the power of an athlete, that comes by going to the gym. I'll wait for the resonant amens to die down. See, everybody wants to be, uh, yeah, I want to be, well, then you're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to put in the time because that's where the power comes from to be an athlete. If you don't want to do that, then you're going to be denied the power to be a professional athlete. That doesn't mean your parents disown you. You're still a son or daughter, right? Whether you go into that profession or not, you're still the son and daughter. And it's the same thing here. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are his sons and daughters. But if I, as the scripture says, want to do the things that Jesus did, then I'm going to have to have the Holy Spirit that he had. And that's why he says to them, you're going to be the witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. You will be clothed with power from on high. He's not saying we will have a relationship. He, he's acknowledging that we already have one. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is the, the sequel to Luke's gospel, he continues right away in Luke, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he picks up the same language that he concluded the gospel of Luke with. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He illustrates the need of Christ's followers to have the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you can't convince somebody intellectually who's spiritually blinded. Paul wrote about this in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 where he says we don't wage war against flesh and blood but against the powers and rulers and authority in the heavenly places. Well, how do, I, how do I fight a battle that I can't touch? How do I fight a battle that I don't even see, but I know the battle's real? It's like, and I just say this as an example, we know that there is a battle between Ukraine and the Russians right now. I haven't physically flown over to observe it, but I know that it's real. And it's the same way. I know there's a battle in the heavenlies. Have I seen it? No, but I've seen the effects of that battle. So how do I engage myself in that battle if I can't physically see it? And that's what the power of the Holy Spirit is all about. So number seven, this is the last point. Everybody read it out loud. The Apostle Paul emphasized the need for the power of the Holy Spirit. So what you have in the rest of the writings following Jesus' resurrection is this. Satan has unleashed one massive deceit. He's just blinding people's spirit. Satan is not trying to disprove that Jesus rose from the dead. Hey, it, it says that even the demons believe in Jesus and tremble. So there's no argument even in hell about whether Jesus ascended or, 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 or rose from the dead. By the way, it tells us in three days that Jesus descended to hell and he took the keys to hell. So it's real easy to figure out why they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He has the keys to the house. You know, it's kind of like, well, you know, well, if he's not real, then who took our keys? Because it says he has the keys to death than Hades, right? So not even the demons get into an argument about, well, Jesus really rose from the dead or not. We're like, dude, he's got the keys. <laughs> Sounds like he's alive to me. So the problem is they're not buying what Jesus says he is. And they're, they're out to disprove it. So it's a blindness. So the devil is putting blindness and misunderstanding on people's lives so that they don't respond to the resurrection. So Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. So in other words, this is not an intellectual battle. That doesn't get us off the hook from communicating. But if intellectualism could win the battle, we would already be there. What, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's what? See, see how everybody was real hesitant? Because it's like, ooh, the he, he, pastor is going so woo-woo this morning. <laughs> hey, I'm not the one who said he was a ghost. The disciples said he was a ghost. Okay, so I didn't inject woo-woo. They're the ones, so blame the scripture. <laughs> but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Then he goes on to say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. A lot of people stop right there and it's a, it's a hallelujah, amen, shouting point, and then they just move on. Hang on. On the contrary, they have divine power. Oh, divine power. What is this divine? So we read about this power, this power, this power. What is this, this divine power to demolish strongholds? Again, hallelujah, amen, I can get on board with that. But what's a stronghold? 
We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. A stronghold is something that I believe that the word says, uh-uh, that's not right. But I believe that. But the word says, no, sorry. You can believe it all you want, but it's not true. The word says this. See, a stronghold in these disciples was it. Man, Jesus was probably one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. Wrong. What, he wasn't great? No, he wasn't a prophet. He was a Messiah. See, that's a stronghold. A stronghold was he was a, he, they, they truly believed he was a prophet. And he was a phenomenal. They really believed that. It was a stronghold. And they really believed that, well, this power is to be used to dethrone the Romans and let's set things up and let's set things in order. Again, stronghold, wrong. That's not what this is about. Does God care about justice? Yeah. But that's not what this was about. See, stronghold, believing something firmly, really, truly, it wasn't true. Some of you here today may have some strongholds. Yeah, I used to be saved, but then, you know, I saw this, I saw that, I heard. Oh, so you got strongholds too. You let strongholds drown out the truth that you once knew. And now the enemy has used stuff to blind you. Hey, he'll use bitterness, he'll use hurt, he'll use disappointment to blind you. Yeah, I know what those people are really like. Hey, I've said this many times. I grew up a preacher's kid. I saw things, heard things I wish I'd have never learned, never saw. But I can tell you this. I remember the day I asked Jesus, please restore my innocence about the church. Because I'm, I'm letting the junk get me. Hey, where there's people, there'll be junk. That's why they all need a savior. Okay, so it was just, hey, restore my innocence about the church. I know, I know there's good people. I know there's transformed people. And I know you still do that. Restore my confidence in that. See, it's not enough. Don't, don't let blindness rule you. Rebuke the blindness. Jesus, let me see what I need to see. Let me believe what I would need to believe. Let me do what I, I know you want me to do. Help me to not yield to the hurts, the pains, the suffering, the disappointments, the frustrations, because that's the enemy's way of copping me out of what Jesus really did in my life and for my life. I rebuke that. Now we're going to close the service in a way that you probably, that's a little different. I'm going to give you a little exercise. No, I don't mean get up and run around. Okay, so some of you are like, oh no. I'm going to give you a little mental exercise. Who are two people that you know that are spiritually blinded and have false expectations? And as a result, they do not have the relationship with Jesus that they should be having. Two people. You know what? I think within five seconds, most of us got two, and some of us got more than two. Can I just kind of let you know, your intellectualism will never be the key to Jesus reaching them. It will be the power of the Holy Spirit breaking the spiritual bondage of blindness and false expectations and their eyes being open and their heart opening and they go, did you know? And you go, I told you that three years ago. And I told you last year and I told you the year ago and I told you last month and I told you a week ago. And, but all of a sudden today, it is a divine revelation. Why? Because the darkness has been broken 
And let me tell you that, that's why you need the Holy Spirit. So here's how we're going to do this. Would everybody stand this morning? This is how we're going to wrap up the service. We have this thing that we do called passionate core prayers where everybody prays out loud in a conversational tone. We're not competing with each other, but we're, we're praying in a conversational tone. And I want you to pray for those two people that God brought to your mind. I want you to pray for them. I figure, I figure somebody's soul's worth about a minute and a half at least, right? And you know what? If everybody in this room is praying for two people, counting this service and the next service, that means there's been over a thousand people who have been prayed for today. That, that, that hell would release the grip that he has on them and that Jesus would start to break into their life. So come on, everybody. A minute and a half, I'm going to shut off my mic. Two people that you know, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, come on. Everybody pray for two people out loud. Come on, lift your voice.